0: Stand clear of the closing doors, please.
1: In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy, horror, sci fi, and the just plain weird come together in The Kaleida cast. Join Professor Brad Overstreet. Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, and Assistant Crypto Provost Don Fairweather Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute, and Inquisitor James Earl King II, as they explore the stories drifting in and
2: out of your reality.
0: So, what am I looking at here? This is the Chinatown Museum by Christina Yu. I understand this little gem comes to us from Sunset Park? Eh, Thereabouts. Took a little while to find, if you want to know the truth. You don't say. I may have gotten lost. (laughs) That'll happen. But
3: you know, that's the beauty of stories. You just get lost in them. They take you someplace mysterious. Someplace different. You think you know where you're headed. But then, all of a sudden, I...
0: Anyway. Right. Sorry.
2: The Chinatown Museum. We are excited to visit the Chinatown Museum, located in the center of Chinatown, according to a guidebook. We had been to Chinatown at least 50 times, but had never heard of the museum until recently, although the book indicates that it is an old historic site. We begin our walk in the center of the city, The walk will be long and take the entire afternoon, but we do not mind, for we have much to discuss with each other, and the weather is pleasant. Along the way, we see rooftops shaped like pagodas, pig and duck carcasses glowing in restaurant windows, and fresh cream cakes bejeweled with sliced strawberries and kiwis. It is difficult to know when exactly we enter Chinatown, for we have not yet seen the red arches with gold Chinese lettering. All around us, there are carts of coconuts and lychee. Mechanized toys come alive on the curbs. Little animals bark and run around in circles and play Fur Elise over and over again. And the streets smell of urine and gasoline. None of this is a surprise, for we have been to Chinatown many times before. When we were young, we thought the rest of the world was Chinatown. Whenever our parents took us to visit New York, Chicago, Boston, or San Francisco, we ended up touring Chinatown and nothing else. So for us, our suburban town was a small dot of green calm in a never-ending labyrinth of pagoda-roofed buildings. One day, a decade and a half ago, we visited New York City on a class trip. Instead of seeing firecrackers and noisy streets filled with strange fruits and vegetables, we toured the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, and Rockefeller Center. Where have you taken us? We wanted to say. This is not the city. Each time we returned to New York after that, the Chinatown in our minds grew smaller and smaller, and the rest of the city, larger and larger. Today, we continue to walk, deeper and deeper into what is most definitely Chinatown, despite the fact that we have not yet seen the red arches. Somehow, we must have missed them along the way, though we were looking carefully at our surroundings and not talking to each other. We turn the corner, some children are playing with firecrackers, There are noodle shops with dirty tiles and stores filled with bonsai trees and brightly colored paper fans. We try to read the red and gold-lettered banners strung from window to window out loud, but soon give up and pretend we are distracted by the cheap jewelry and perfume. Long ago, we learned all the characters, or at least most of them. 4,000 when we were young, and then 6,000 in college, approximately 2,000 repeated. But somehow, despite our schooling, we cannot read a single character. We have memorized them all, stroke by stroke, and forgotten each of them, all 6,000, several times over. But we know that if we should sit down one day and memorize all the characters again, they would be memorized a bit more quickly and stay in our minds a bit longer, though not much. How many episodes of memorization would it take to force the characters to stay in our minds, until everything we have ever learned is emptied out, fact by fact, by disease and old age. We cannot find the museum, though it is supposed to be somewhere in front of us. The guidebook states that the museum is on the street we are standing on. We look up and down and at our feet, and still we cannot find the museum. At last, we see a few other tourists across the street, looking at maps, pointing at buildings and whispering to each other. They glance around, then, one by one, begin to climb what looks like the fire escape of an ordinary red brick building. Although this is an unusual entrance for a museum, we decide they must be heading to the same destination, and so we follow them. We climb through a half-opened window. Inside, we find a bed, a sewing machine with a few spools of thread displayed beside it, a half-opened suitcase on the couch stuffed with letters, some of them opened and begging to be read a woman standing by the sink, one hand holding the edge of a walk and the other waving with exaggerated enthusiasm at someone beyond the window. In the hallway beyond, the floorboards creak with other visitors.
3: Christina Yu holds an A.B. in English with Creative Writing from Dartmouth College and an M.F.A. in Creative Writing from Notre Dame, where she was the Diversity Fellow and Nicholas Sparks Fellow at Hatchet Book Group. Her work has previously appeared in venues such as Fence, New Letters, Indiana Review, the Robert Owen Butler Prize Stories Anthology, and the Painted Bride Quarterly among others, and has been nominated and cited in several Best American Anthologies. Renee Chambliss has been to Chinatown in San Francisco often. It's one of the perks of living in Northern California. Her kids love it and could spend all day shopping there. Plastic nunchucks, parasols, tea sets, lion puppets. There's so much to buy and they want everything. When she's not saying, no, you can't have that, to their endless requests, Renee is narrating audiobooks and wishing she could carve out some writing time. Find out more about her at rechambliss.com.
4: Dawn Fairweather Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute here, broadcasting live from the Social Anthropomorphology Department. Professor Overstreet and Sam Spellingbound are indisposed. Oh, they're fine. But if they're expecting to find the latest George R.R. Martin in Coney Island, I have a hunch they'll be disappointed. So, something you should know. I don't often listen to the Guanas Canal. It's dirty, and it complains a lot. But every once in a while, it has something to say. And it's pretty good at finding the right ears to whisper into and the right hands to compel. And it never tells its own story. This story found its way into the ear of S. Chakraborty and then into the mouth of a crocodile of all things which swam up to shore and deposited the sudden thing right at my feet before sliding back into the murky depths. Who knew there were crocodiles in the Gowanus Canal? So, I bring it to you here, along with a recommendation. When the Gowanus speaks, you listen. Biladi by S. Chakraborty
1: you were called Hapi. Well, no, not really, not anymore. The people who called you Hapi, who called your brothers Anubis and Osiris, are gone. You've been called a thousand names since then Mazomba, Petsukos, Nilos, Marid, Genie, El Nadaha. Strange names, mostly forgotten names. And those who didn't know your names recognized you by the unexplained ripple across the water's surface, by the sudden fury of the seasonal floods. Either way, the names mean very little. You've swam the river since time eternal. It's all you know. But how you know it? You're intimates with the dark emerald forests, the deep cold lakes, and the rushing falls of the south. Every bend Every shallow, swampy cataract is ingrained in your mind, and the sound of the wind whistling through papyrus is your anthem. You know the scalding sun, the brilliant white light as the river carves through the northern deserts, cleaving the great sands like a jagged wound. You swim, you dive, you drift along in its sluggish, steady current like deadwood. For millennia, you laugh as you crest its banks spilling over the land and raking it with rich, life-giving soil. Your forms are as endless as the river itself. You trawl the pebbly bottom as a crocodile and charge the shore as a water buffalo. You stand silently as a leggy crane and are caressed by the breeze as a reed. You are a fish, a frog. With reptile eyes, bird eyes, no eyes, you observe the men building their great temples of stone, their pyramids of marble, they're dry cities. They fear you. They worship you. But it means nothing. You belong to the river, and the river is eternal. It cares for nothing but you. Occasionally, you spot a group of laughing children and take the form of a playful boy. You teach them how to twist reeds into little ships that can be raced in the shallows, how to choose the best rocks for diving, and where the slimiest toads hide. Other times you gently nudge them towards safer swimming holes, conscious of the eyes of a hungry crocodile or temperamental hippopotamus. You never do more. Death is not your domain. The river is. The river changes, of course, as do the land surrounding it. On your seasonal return to the north one year, you find the river blocked by a massive stone dam. You are swept along as it creeps through the tiny villages and buries the stone temples. Confused, you explore the depths of the new lake and wade through drowned fields, waiting for the floods to recede, but they never do. While examining the structure, you are sucked through a shaft and deposited on the other side. Despite frantic attempts, you are never able to cross back. Your river, your spirit, is broken. The annual floods will never return. Stunned by such incomprehensible loss, You flee to the silt-choked northern deltas, your world reduced. You avoid the dam, drifting between sprawling cities, loud places where metal boats churn the water into brown foam, and leak foul, sharp-smelling oils. Still, it is your place, and so you swim. Until one day, a day like any other, when you spot two children walking along your shores. You have taken the form of a crocodile. Drifting along the cool streams from the distant bottom, and watch them from eyes barely above the waterline. Their animosity immediately marks them as siblings. The boy is kicking a melon, the rind jewel bright on the dusty riverside path. His sister complains, gesturing angrily towards the bruised fruit. The melon rolls a bit too far, bumping off the path and towards the river's edge. Angry now, The little girl pushes her brother and sets off to retrieve it, balancing carefully on a wooden beam, the remains of an old fishing shack. You eye the crumbling wood, stretch her tail to test the rushing current. You know what will happen. The beam collapses, and the girl tumbles into the brown water with a shriek. Her brother shouts, half stumbling down the bank to the river's edge, but she has already been swept too far for him to reach. He cries her name, He cries for help, his little voice desperate. You see the girl's surface, sputtering and splashing as she nears you. You twist, slithering in her direction, but something seems to push against you. A voice that is not a voice reminds you not to interfere. Death is not your domain. But she has already seen you. Shocked, she freezes and slips back under the water. When she reemerges, she is screaming for her mother, and her bright black eyes are shut tight, as if she can't bear to see her fate. The water suddenly smells of urine. Your form, of course, the crocodile, and although you've swam these waters for years, an indifferent observer to whatever small tragedies took place, you realize you are responsible for this terror. You've hurt this innocent, and without thinking very much of it, you become a boy, scales and claws giving way to skin and fingers. You hook an arm around her and swim for the shore. She is trembling in your arms when you reach the river's edge, and her sobbing brother grabs her, clutching her close. I'm sorry, Venia," I'm sorry. He holds her at arm's length, examining her face. Are you okay?" She is. You watch her take a shaky breath and open her bright eyes. The air is thick with betrayal. You take a step back meaning to slip silently into your home, but the water burns, a sensation you have never felt but instantly recognize, and you realize you have been punished. You have been cast out for breaking the unwritten codes that govern your existence. You are lost. You will spend two weeks sitting in a dusty path, watching the muddy river swirl without you before the boy comes back. He comes from a good, God-fearing family, thinking you a street child, an orphan whose head isn't quite right. They take mercy and you are placed with a sympathetic uncle, a mechanic who always needs quick hands. You sleep on a flattened cardboard box inside the garage. The uncle is kind, his patience helped by the fact that you are a quick learner. He stops questioning when you stare at a pair of shoes without comprehension or drink gasoline in your ignorance of human ways. He says nothing when you return from your failed attempts to enter the river with tears in your eyes. The work is not difficult, and you are honest. But he notices how you watch his niece, the girl whose rescue strands you from your world. She is beautiful, with eyes that remind you of the river at night, and wild hair like a heron's nest. You overhear her mother tell her to stay away from the strange dark boy. He's not right in the head but she manages to sneak away to the garage shortly after you've started working there. She pops up from behind the car hood as you fill the tires with air. I know what you are, she announces. You straighten up, interested. You don't know what you are. He thought you were the river and can't conceive of any identity separate from it. You're a crocodile, she declares with a triumphant smile. Her uncle shouts, and she dances away before you can respond. And so you try to become a crocodile. But it's impossible. Your other forms are lost, and the river continues to deny you, the water burning your skin, the reeds whistling their condemnation. The years pass, and you try to settle into this strange life, living amongst creatures whose ancestors once worshipped you. They call you Habib. The uncle teaches you everything he knows about these things called cars, a concept you'll find fascinating for years. He opens them up, pressing your hands against the greasy metal innards and explaining how they work. He gets slower as you grow taller and older. His hands start to shake, and you take over more of the work. The girl goes to university, a world you learn is close to the type of person you've become. You watch her come and go, her bag laden with books, arm-in-arm with other giggling girls in long denim skirts and colorful hijab. Her brother notices, speaks to you with sympathetic eyes. Forget it, Habib. Girls are impossible these days. They want husbands with furnished apartments, motorbikes, and connections. And a good job. He complains, his voice bitter. He graduated last year and hasn't been able to find a job. He says his girlfriend won't wait much longer. You nod, adding furnished apartments and motorbikes to the ever-expanding list of things that are important in this dry world. But the uncle grows more tired, and the girl is good at sums. She starts coming by the garage twice a week to go over the books. You only exchange simple greetings, but you can feel her eyes as you work. She's the only one who ever suspected that you are something more than what you pretend. You keep your gaze down but pause to listen to the sound of her sweet voice whenever she makes a phone call. She has grown more beautiful. Cairo becomes tense, far more than you can remember since climbing from the river. There's excitement in the air. Anger. Frustration. Thrill. As the crowd grows in the streets, the garage is silent. No one is calling to inquire about prices or berate you for not fixing their breaks before the weekend. The girl leaves her uncle's tiny office, joining you at the front of the garage to watch the growing throngs. She smells of floral soap and western shampoo. They aren't river smells, but they tickle your nose nonetheless. She speaks up, her voice hesitant. They say it really might happen this time, that he'll really leave. You only have the dimmest idea of who she's speaking about a face that blurs with the faces of other past tyrants who sailed the river. This land has always been full of them. But you nod, hoping to shield your ignorance. Her brother runs up, his face flushed with excitement. He tugs his sister's hand, grins at you. Come on, let's go! They're saying that there are already a million people in Tahrir Square. She's hesitant. You're indifferent. But his infectious delight convinces her, and because she's going... You decide to follow. You immediately regret the decision. The streets are packed and chanting people press against you from all sides, hoisting signs and waving flags. The noise and the closeness is overwhelming and you shrink away, fighting the urge to flee. The girl looks awed by the crowd and smiles nervously. Her brother punches the air, shouting with the crowd, Ashab! You read! Anazim! The people want... The fall of the regime! As you start to cross the bridge, the crowd grows even denser and comes to a stop. You survey the mass of people, surprised by the diversity. A trio of women in identical abayas are singing, an elderly couple clasp hands. A young boy, his face painted with the collars of the flag, is handing out necklaces of braided jasmine. The girl's brother goes to join a rambunctious group of dancing men, and she drifts towards the railing. The girl looks over the side of the bridge, her bright eyes reflecting the light sparkling off the water. You cannot stand to look at the river, cannot abide by the pain it provokes in your heart. Instead, you settle your gaze on the slender hands grasping the metal railing. She has beautiful hands, lovely in their plainness, hands that in other centuries would clean fish and wash clothes in the river. The air is full of excitement and newness and you suddenly wonder what it would be like to hold those hands. You rest one of yours next to hers, your fingers nearly meeting. As if she knows what you're thinking, she looks up, her dark eyes meeting yours, a shy smile. In the distance, someone screams and an odd whistling sound breaks the heavy air. But you have spent countless centuries being a simple observer, and you don't look away from her gaze. Which is how you see the exact moment the light leaves her eyes when the tear gas canister strikes her skull. She collapses in your arms as the metal canister rolls away, spewing white smoke that chokes your lungs and stings your eyes. Blood streams from her head, turning her white hijab crimson. Dumbly, you place your hand over the blood as if that will stop it, as if that will bring the light back to her eyes. The bridge is in chaos, people fleeing the gas and threatening to crush you. Pushy hands are trying to help, offering soiled kerchiefs to stop the bleeding, forming a chain to protect you from the crowd, taking pictures with their mobiles. Someone shouts for a doctor while another declares her a martyr. And then her brother is there, screaming her name as he did so many years ago. Numb, you let him take her and he clutches her close, Sobbing into her shoulder, an older woman wails as the brother pleads for his sister to come back, begging God's forgiveness for bringing her here, but he wasn't the one who brought her here. Stricken by grief, you whirl away and it catches your eyes. Even clouded by white smoke, the river still sparkles. You glance at the girl, but it pulls harder, calling to you. Your hands are slick with her blood, but grasp the railing well enough to climb over it. No one stops you. Their attention is focused on the murdered girl or their own escape. You stretch your arms, the dry air embracing you for the last time, and then fall into the dive, the same dive you've taught to centuries of children. You expect the water to burn for it to deny you entrance yet again and shatter your existence once and for all against its unyielding surface. But instead, it rushes to meet you, its cool wetness wrapping your limbs, soothing your mind. You submerge, sinking towards the muddy bottom, It smells of life-giving silt, of crumbled stone temples, of dusty feluccas and swimming buoys, of crocodile skins and fish entrails. Of blood, the blood of an innocent whose death has allowed you to return. You know its smell and its rich iron taste. It has been spilled into the river for centuries past and will continue to be spilled until this world is finished. But as you drift away from the bridge, your eyes are drawn not to your beautiful river, but to the dry lands lining its banks. You gaze at the drab concrete buildings with their green shutters at the crowded wooden houseboats, stone minarets. You think of their inhabitants and the ancient land that embraces your river. It is the land of Hutkapita, which was called Kemet, Mitzrayim in Aegyptos, Kimi and then Maser, Egypt, a thousand forgotten names and a thousand names still to come, your country, your land, Biladi.
0: S. Chakraborty lives in Queens, New York, with her daughter and husband, and is working on her first novel. Her other published short stories are The Jin" in Expanded Horizons and Yerushalom in Cross Genres. Narrator Laura Nicholas is an NYC-based actor, singer, and model who recently won the 2014 Broadway World Denver Best Actress Award for her portrayal of Kim in Miss Saigon. Laura has been seen on the stages of Lincoln Center, Vital Theater, The Gallery Players, Theater 80, and Ogunquit Playhouse, among others. She has toured and worked regionally in about 20 different states. She is also currently pursuing some TV and film, as well as commercial and print work. More information about Laura, including upcoming stage and screen appearances, is available at Laura Nicholas, spelled L O R A N I C O L A Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Our sound engineers are Atticus Ryan Garten, Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mazzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland McLean as Dawn Fairweather Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace by Harry Parch used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen the Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial no derivatives 4.0 international license which means you can share it all you want but don't sell it or change it and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors.